This is Brass Tactics, policy and strategy for the people, not the politics. Welcome to Brass Tactics, where I still don't have a clear intro tagline. Here with us today, though, I have our usual co-host, Pete. Pete, say hi. Put the coffee down, Pete. We talked about this. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Sean and Joe. And as Pete just introduced, we have a guest today, so it's not just Pete and I arguing with each other. Now we have a referee, and that is our colleague and co-worker, Sean Marquis. Thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. Me too. You know, just hunting the good stuff. Life is great. As you can see, we're not the most refined at the small talk transitions yet. But in any case, Sean, I don't know how much I actually told you because my my brain has been trying to just stay inside of my skull most of this week. But the point of this podcast is sort of breaking down big foreign policy stuff that policy wonks and other people talking about. And it just it doesn't feel like they care about whether or not it's accessible to the voters, to the to the people that all of this global stuff affects. So here on Brass Tactics, we, we take the strategy and we, we get down to brass tactics with it. See, there's a pun in there. I'm really proud of it. I, did. I see what you did there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's the point. So just casual conversations that people can hold their ground at fancy cocktail parties with, or at least vote informedly about foreign policy from now on. So last time we talked about what is war and sort of the American way of warfare, something that usually goes hand in hand with American and warfare and all that stuff. And that's the military industrial complex. It's a huge, I'll just probably make up a statistical number here, portion of our economy. It consumes a lot of government resources and it's our most public and probably most prolific branch of foreign policy. And so today we're going to, we wanted to talk about the American military industrial complex. Is it a bad guy? Is it a good guy? Is it a necessary evil? And how did it come to be? Since we talked like war, philosophy of war, things like that, instead of the policy side, we're just, we're looking at the technical side now, the science of it, the, the innovation that has, or when did it start? And when did it become so ingrained that we we cannot, at this point, envision a national security environment without the American military-industrial complex? Wow. Well, that sounds exciting. A lot, of, a lot of big topics in there. If we broke it down to one, at some point, having the best weapons became a huge part of the American formula for success in conflict. Where did that happen and how did that evolve? Or or am I just sort of wrong on that speculation? Because we're wrong on this show plenty. Pete, I think that's right up your alley. Mm. Regarding, like, mm, I don't really, I don't know. I'm not really prepared. I wasn't prepared for you to actually kick that over to me right there. Thought you were going to say something. Well, actually, I think I think a better question. Yeah, we don't want to say that. Is uh, Raytheon a bad guy? Oh yeah, I, I, I whoa 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 whoa! We're gonna go down talking about defense contractors and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Now that I can comment on, in terms of like Americans' inclination to specifically look at technological solutions for warfare. I don't know the history on, hey, when did that become the route that we predominantly take? Uh, it's something that I've probably talked about before in class, but I don't have don't have that in front of me. Um, well, I mean, citing your famous article for the Modern War Institute, what, two years ago or so? It wasn't in 1776 when they were the good guy insurgents because they're just scrounging at that point. Where they're innovating, it's probably tactically. Yes. Which we should probably talk about, we talk about more than just the sciencey innovations too. But then some, at some point after that, probably wasn't 1812 because that didn't really break our way as much as we'd like to think. But I definitely, definitely think that by the time World War II finishes, the military, especially the Navy that we had at the start of the World Wars was not the same shape 
or composition that it was by the end. And I'm sure that changed a lot about how we projected our military. It's important to distinguish, though, like the difference between mass and quality. So you could say like during, especially during the era of the world wars in the 20th century, the the American military machine, I think it's marked more by just sheer scale of industrial mobilization. Not necessarily the best, you know, the best equipment, the best material, but we absolutely bring the most. And then a very impressive skill in logistics to be able to get it from the factories to the front line. I was more thinking of the aircraft carriers that weren't around when aircraft weren't around yet that then became to be around later. Yeah, but arguably the Japanese show more innovation with the aircraft carrier pre-war than the Americans do. It's the Japanese who, you know, strike Pearl Harbor with carrier-based aircraft, whereas the Americans are still very much stuck in the battleship time frame. I mean, they, they, we straight up court-martial Billy Mitchell, no relation, be, because of his effort to kind of overthrow the battleship mafia and, like, bring, bring the prominence of the aircraft up higher. Uh, it's not after we learn the hard way that we start adopting the fleet carrier as kind of the center of naval force projection. So, so I was just going to point out somewhere buried in yeah. there, we started talking about the Japanese. And so I might have misled this whole thing by saying it's the American way is to innovate when clearly we're not the only innovators when it comes to the military. I mean, I think I think all of the World War II movies, most of our listeners, in particular my mother and, and now my wife, so we're up to two. The Germans, their tank was renowned. Brad Pitt really, Shia LaBeouf too. They really hammer that one home as well, right? So innovation and war and conflict maybe is the is the more accurate topic. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a there's like a whole bunch of things in there I'd love to talk about, right? So, I mean, one of the first things early when you first start off the podcast, you mentioned like, well, maybe we should talk about some of the other things besides technology when we talk about innovation. In teaching innovation, one of my biggest pet peeves is people talking about innovation as though it's purely technology, right? Equating technological change or technological advancement with innovation, Right. Whereas innovation generally goes one step further than just using that next new shiny object. Right. It's it often includes changes in technology. But in addition to those changes in technology, how do you change the way you fundamentally operate to do whatever you're doing in an exponentially better or more effective way? Right. Because, you know, some incremental changes in technology, yes, they bring about improvement, but it's marginal improvement. Right. Whereas when I think innovation, I'm thinking about something that's really causing a significant change. So, yeah, if we talk the aircraft carrier, the aircraft carrier is clearly naval warfare being innovated. Right. Throughout naval warfare, battleships had had their heyday for a long, long time. That's how people pictured warfare at sea. And then World War II, we see, especially in the Pacific, right? Aircraft carrier warfare is the dominant way of projecting naval force. Okay. So to mix metaphors, it's not really about building a better mousetrap. It's about reinventing the wheel. It's just finding a more creative and imaginative way to do something. I'm putting the emphasis in the wrong spot, and I, I imagine I'm probably not the only one where the technology part is the flashy, eye-catching part, but it's really, it's the operations changing that's that's really moving things. It's creating new eras. I don't think even Peter would disagree if I were to say that the aircraft carrier and organizing your naval fleets around task forces based off of that aircraft carrier was a marked difference from that line-up-your-battleships sort of military-naval engagement. Yeah, the, the, the classic example of what, of what Sean and, and, and Joe are speaking of, it it's would be the, uh, the German invasion of France in 1940. The, the Germans' army have inferior tanks and aircraft to the British and the French, and fewer of them. It's just how they fueled them and their tactical operational innovations of maneuver warfare. I'm not going to use the German word. Uh, uh, blitzkrieg. But it's maneuver warfare that allows them to flexibly move and basically uh, 
They're able to break through and then exploit the breakthrough, not due to any material advantage, but to attack. No, I was, I was going to say Bevegu's Krieg, but yeah. yeah. Well, so Blitzkrieg was like the Germans didn't even call it that. Not we'll we'll link to the show notes to yeah. illustrate this. That's it's a British it's a Britishism. It, yeah, it was a it was a media thing. It was it was novelty. The British didn't set out to do this. The Brit the excuse me the Germans didn't set out to to reinvent war. They looked at like that von Moltke guy and Clausewitz that we referenced earlier. They looked at World War One and they were like, okay, well. This form of warfare did not get us very far. We need to come up with a new strategy. And I think that's a great place to introduce our, our cocktail convo tip for the day. It used to be a very popular theory. It was revolutions in military affairs. And you still hear it from time to time. The theory itself, I don't think, is there quite as much. But everybody still feels like you see these revolutions, these times where you see a dramatic transition, a break from before. World War One was one of those, because World War One didn't look like any of the wars that came before it. Like we talked about on the last show, World War One was very much fueled by everybody started reading Clausewitz and having their own ideas, and it, it became a very tragic, just meat grinder of a conflict. And then starting out with World War Two, you see you see this immediate reaction, this immediate change in operations as Germans seek to overcome um, that trench warfare that that they assumed everybody else would be going for, so they they innovated, and on top of that, you like those all of those internal combustion widgets definitely definitely helped out. But it wasn't about the technology for the Germans. Going back to Sean's point, it, it was about the completely re envisioning how to conduct this offensive operation. Yeah, I mean to elaborate on that, right? So at the end of World War One, Germany especially realizes that hey. If we're going to have any shot at this thing, we need to find some way of breaking through these lines other than just everybody get up out of the trench, run forward and try to seize the next trench line, right? And so they develop stormtroop tactics, this whole idea of try to find this one weak spot, penetrate it using, you know, smaller units with more firepower pushed down to lower levels. The idea of trying to hit your enemy in depth rather than in breadth using terrain to your advantage, small units with higher degrees of training and aggression. And it, it, it certainly works better for them. It's still nowhere near what it will eventually be in World War I when we've got you know, much more massive maneuver warfare, largely enabled by advancements in, in tank capability. Good game. Now you say something, Pete. I really liked what Sean said. All right, so I think we all agree. The, the, the this, do you want me to talk about? Do you want me to talk about Wunderwaffe real quick about how like? I, all right, go ahead. No, I started talking. It's my turn now. You had your chance. You passed. Pass. You can wait till I play a reverse Uno card. Uh, I'll go again. You could go again, but I did so just because we spent a fair bit of time now on. On World War One and World War Two, I think I think we all agree that this was a a marked a marked transition. Um, but again, I don't I don't want to completely divorce the the genius of the innovation and strategy and operations um, because we we have been sort of ragging on the technology part a little bit, and maybe we the technology part does deserve ragging on, but that. That doesn't change the fact that the military-industrial complex tends to be this big bugbear that that we are left with today. Is is this where it truly originates from being the arsenal of democracy? Was was that an FDRism, Pete? Yes, it was. He made a famous speech about it. Yeah. So we basically told the world, "Hey, we're just going to be an arms dealer for people who like the things we do: free trade and liberty." And so is this the start of the military-industrial complex? And is the military-industrial complex our source of innovation? Or do they just wait for innovators in the operations, the innovators in strategy, to come up with ideas, and then they just make them true? Are they the Oompa Loompas to the strategic Willy Wonka? Oof. So that's a tough one. My gut instinct is to just say no, right? The military-industrial complex in and of itself is not the driver of military innovation. However, they, they are kind of an important enabler. 
and I got to break this down a little bit, right? So when I say they're not what causes military innovation, military innovation's really hard because militaries don't like to innovate. Most people will just take that at face value. Militaries are very tradition-based. They are very much set in their ways. They're very hierarchical in nature. You want to change the military. That's generally difficult to do unless you're just trying to add that new, cool, technological thing. For me, I'm an infantryman, and if you say, hey, infantryman, I've got this new rifle that can shoot a little bit farther, a little bit more accurate, a little bit faster, I'm going to say, great, cool, give it to me. I'm excited to have it. But that doesn't change anything about how I operate. I don't have to go burr. Right. I don't have to relearn tactics or doctrine or skills. I just take that piece of technology, adhere it to everything I've already been doing, and I get a little bit more deadly. The military industrial complex, they're really, really good at giving us those marginal increases through technology. But when we're talking about what drives true military innovation, usually it takes something bigger to cause military innovation. You know, we're talking earlier about Germany and their big military innovation with Blitzkrieg and that sort of stuff going into World War II. Well, think about it. What happened to the German military that drove them to innovate? The loss of World War I, right? When you lose a war, it's really hard as a military to say, we don't need to change. You just lost a war, right? And when you look at all of the countries coming out of and how much they change in the interwar years, Germany really makes some massive leaps and bounds. You know, like you said, with maneuver warfare especially, and it kind of makes an inherent sense in that logic. When you lose, you understand much more fundamentally the need to change. Whereas if you were a victor, well, it's really hard to make the case of what we're doing doesn't work. Now, World War I was such an extremely costly war that you would think that the point would have gotten home to more people more uh, absolutely, but largely you saw a lot of countries and militaries at the time um, come away from World War I with just a general anti-military attitude due to how destructive it was. The, the cool thing that, that Sean's talking about is how the, the military, uh, the established industrial companies and the military itself, they, they like to use iterative rather than innovative processes. Uh, you know, like the slow, gradual improvements over the status quo versus rapid, unorthodox changes. It Because it, it takes a lot of risk in a business to do that. If you're going to make something that's new and unorthodox and unproven, it's a huge risk, especially when you're talking about the military. Because if the military doesn't like it and doesn't buy what you're trying to sell them, you're out of luck. You've lost all the you've lost all the money you've put into it for research and development. Yeah, and Pete, similarly, right? It's dangerous for companies to try to pitch innovative military technologies because the military might not buy it. But similarly, if you are the military and you're talking about developing a new innovative doctrine, whether that's carrier-based naval warfare or armored maneuver warfare, that's dangerous and it's difficult, right? Because your military knows how to fight and win with some certain doctrine that they've already been using. Then to tell them, hey, we need to change. Well, what happens if you choose to change and what you change to isn't better or isn't better enough? Dramatic. You could lose a war or you could get excessively costly um, losses at the outset of the next war because you chose poor innovation options. Right. And so that's another big piece of why military innovation is so hard is because unless you suffered some major defeat or there's some big specter on the horizon, unless there's some big reason to change, it's really hard to go away from what worked. Is that paradoxical? Because if you don't have an incentive to change, then you, you don't want to change and you probably aren't going to change. But at the same time, if everybody else presumably who's been losing because they have that incentive to change, is changing. Aren't they just going to leave you behind? Is innovation as critical to success, to victory, to fill in your blank with a positive political goal here, as we seem to think it is, since all we can talk about these days is innovating, even though we probably would start a fight by saying that even though we haven't lost, but... I mean, it's certainly a number of draws. Is that sufficient to cause innovation? Or or is innovation, 
dis despite the fact that armies are traditional, militaries are traditional, they're resistant to change, they, they stick to their ways, they're disciplined, and so they're, they're drilled to do these things these ways, is that sort of a friction point with the need to always be seeking for a new advantage to leverage against somebody else to ensure you maintain a superior security posture. I think the ghost of World War II is kind of heavy over the conversation of innovation. When you see the rapid collapse of particularly France, which was considered a first-rate military power in 1940 because of a failure to innovate, and then when you put it in the current strategic political climate, with the spread of artificial intelligence software, drones, autonomous systems, there's a feeling in the air that we're kind of on the verge of another, as you mentioned earlier, like a revolution in military affairs, the AI revolution, after the information revolution of the 80s. And if we, as the United States, don't get out ahead of it, someone else will. Good, you know, best case, an ally, and then worst case, a strategic competitor. Well, I do want to point out something because I, I feel like this, this show is very much connected to our last one. And that's because innovation has always been something that we've done, not necessarily because we lost, but because of a sense of urgency. Like we definitely did not lose World War II, right? But we tried for this, and fun fact warning here, this pentomic division. We'll link to it in the show notes, as, as we usually try to do. But basically, we tried to incorporate nukes into like our regular army structure. It sounded like a really good idea at the time, but completely and, and utterly failed. Nobody wanted to do it. And I think, like Sean was saying, that might come back to the tradition mentality. It's the, the way we did things wasn't broke, so why are we trying to fix it? So, so nobody wants to employ it. But World War II... And then we roll into that Cold War, right? If we were to go into a conventional war against that then Soviet Union, I think there's legitimate concerns that we would not have been successful. If we were successful in protecting North America, there was no way we were still also going to be successful in protecting most of Europe. I think that's the start. As, as I said in show two, most of the things that America does can, in fact, be blamed on them commies. And I think that introduces one of the other buzzwords that comes up that I don't think I don't think anybody's really taken the time to explain for the rest of us is the idea of offset strategies. Looking very intently at Sean now to pick up this baton. Yeah. So when we talk offset strategies, right? So the case that you're bringing up here, where we go into post World War II, perfect example of look at the end of World War II. Soviet military, by numbers, massively outstrips what the U.S. has in Europe, even combined with our European allies. We know that in a conventional fight, that doesn't go very well. But luckily, right after World War II, we have nuclear weapons. So what we're able to do is we can offset Soviet advantage in numbers of military conventional power with a nuclear power, right? So it's, hey, if you do this with conventional power, we've got nukes, offset accomplished. And that stays that way for a while. Eventually in 49, the Soviets build their own atomic bomb. And then you know, we sort of keep going with it. And it's, hey, we've got more, we've got better atomic weapons, nuclear weapons. And so that's how we maintain that offset. But over time, the U.S. finally gets to the point where we say, hey, look, this idea that we can just totally prevent any sort of conventional conflict by having more better nuclear weapons doesn't make sense anymore. Because we've reached mutually assured destruction. We've got enough nuclear weapons to erase the Soviet Union. They have enough to erase us. And nobody wants that. So then the question becomes, well, hey, if conventional war breaks out, let's say the Soviet Union does invade one of our European allies, are we willing to end the world over it? And a lot of people sort of come to the conclusion that we probably aren't. So we need to build up some sort of conventional capability to have the ability to respond, right? And so if we're going to build out that conventional capability, the rub is we're still not going to be able to achieve the numbers that the Soviet Union has, right? They're very populous, large military, and in pure numbers, they're probably still going to hold an advantage over us. But what we did have was a technological advantage. And so, you know, talking about the military, the revolution in military affairs, it was actually Soviet military theorists at the time looking at what the U.S. was doing with precision-guided weapons, 
stealth, right? It's all of these things coming together and the Soviets looking at us having it. And they said, these things are going to come together to create a military technological revolution. We then kind of later on see what they're saying about it. And we're like, oh, hey, yeah, we, we are kind of doing that. We renamed it RMA there, that Revolution in Military Affairs when it came over. Right. So just reemphasizing, like you said, people doing that innovation aren't consciously setting out to create this new world order for military strategy and innovation and set a new standard for the new toys of the battlefield. They're literally in a survival mode. And then the Russians are the ones that label it as as benchmarking turning point there. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, spot on. But it's so crazy because at this point we see some really cool things happen, right? So airland battles created as the new U.S. Army doctrine. We realize that no, all of our formations need to be able to fight at a numerical disadvantage and use technological advantages to do things like hitting them in depth and you know, being able to hit precisely with bombs. Suffice to say, this is a period of rapid changes as people are sort of just racking their brain to make sure that we have enough of a threat posed to Soviet aggression that they are, in fact, deterred from moving against us. Because if they did move against us, they are just as unsure as we are that they would be able to achieve those gains. I mean, we could list some of those platforms here specifically, because I think some of those, heck, the Patriot missile system is still around. Patriot missile system, the Abrams tank, the Bradley fighting vehicle, the Apache, the Blackhawk, all of these systems coming out right in the you know, late 70s, early 80s, and they're still with us today. So is that is that a problem? Because at, at one point I was like, Americans... The innovators, key part of our strategy, staying ahead of everybody. But we're so good at innovating. Our main weapon systems are all circa 1980s. Yeah. Well, uh, no, I mean, I don't know how fair that is, though, because I mean, when you look at like the modern versions of the of the so-called Big Five, which which Sean was talking about, they bear very almost nothing in terms of internal components and even sometimes an exterior appearance as to their original models, kind of like a car, like just because Honda is still making the Accord, right? Like the 2029 or 24 Accord is nothing like the you know, 1980 Accord, except just in name. It's, it's a version of repeated and careful iteration. You're not just going to revolutionize and, you know, get rid of the tank. We, there's nothing that we've found yet that can replace it. Yeah. I, I think P looping back in. Yeah. Great. Great way to hit the nail on the head with that one. I mean, while things like the chassis might be the same. Don't give him too much credit. He's just swinging over there wildly. And then it's our job on this on this microphone over here to loop it back in because we were talking about how that military industrial complex is that fantastic at, at improving things one step at a time. Yeah, so I think a lot of the chassis and the airframes and things like that are still very similar to what we had in the 80s. I think what's changing a lot about technological development right now is that so much of the technological change that matters is software related, not hardware related. But hopefully for our listeners, it's sort of coming together as a picture now. Yes, these were largely created in the 1980s after people experimented with angling the armor, armor density, things like that. By the way, you cannot watch Pentagon Wars hard enough. I think it's free on YouTube. Just awesome. Those aren't probably going to change until we figure, like, invent new alloys and things like that. Maybe a lot of those changes were really, really small until, like Pete mentions, we start getting drones and the other big buzzword today, like hypersonics. Linking back into what Pete was talking about, from the 80s up through the last decade or so, relatively stable in terms of the changes. Yes, the software and, and, and nuance changes. But it feels like we're starting to see some big new emergences, right? Yeah, so that's a great question, Joe. And it sort of goes back to earlier when you said, hey, if only the losers are innovating, then doesn't that mean eventually we're going to fall behind? And that's why we need to innovate. It immediately made me think of, uh, of an article that we've got in the, in the class I teach on military innovation, where it discusses the diffusion of military innovation. When I say diffusion, right? It's like, hey, you've got a military innovation that country A does. How difficult is it for country B to look at what country A did and then do that itself? Because not all innovations are going to be decisive the moment that one country gets them. 
we've already talked about Blitzkrieg in Germany a lot so far on this podcast, but I think it's important to note that as successful as it was early in the war, the U.S. figured out really quick that we need to also do this combined arms maneuver warfare too. It wasn't something that they did it and nobody else could do it. Nobody else had it and everyone else, you know, tough luck. And so how quickly or how long that first mover advantage lasts matters, right? So in the example of, say, hypersonic missiles, yeah, apparently, you know, China's tested some out and done some. Russia's got some poor performing example of a hypersonic, supposedly, that Pete's written a wonderful article about on MWI. Well, now Russia's going to send their bot farm after my dinky little podcast, so thank you. That's good. That should be a badge of pride. Any advertisement is good advertisement. <laughs> but But I bring that up to say, okay, great. We may not be the first mover in creating a hypersonic, but isn't it an advantage that's so hard for us to catch up on? And I'd say probably not. And why? Well, because all it really takes to catch up to hypersonics is money and a little time. And we're really good at innovation when all it takes is money. That's sort of our expertise. We need a technological innovation. Sure, we pay money as much as we deem necessary until we get the capability we need. The hard innovations for us to get better at are the ones that require us to change doctrine or do something different. So the military-industrial complex, in this really basic, bare-bones analysis, it's, it's a black box. Somebody needs to bring them an idea. You tell them, hey, they just threatened us with a hypersonic. I need something that's like theirs but better. And they're like, gotcha, fam. They go through that production process. At the end of the day, you're still left with the need to create that input, that, the need for that that genius, that creative thinking to to anticipate the next innovation. How do you do that? Is can you teach that to somebody? Can you can you pay somebody to create that genius? So it is the question, hey, how can we get to the point where we're thinking of those creative ideas and then getting them accepted so that we can pitch them into the military industrial complex to make the things we want to make that innovation work? Yeah. So I guess how do you innovate, right? Because I feel like the next dimension you mentioned there, you like the idea needs traction, needs sponsorship from somewhere, needs to be sold. How do you come up with it? And then how do you, how do you sell it in order to bring something to the military industrial complex to, to manifest? Yeah, so that's great. And there's quite a few different schools of thought on how military innovation happens. Maybe one of the more cynical views is that the military is generally incapable of it and that it requires civilian leadership to direct the military to change. The civ mill model, which is, hey, until civilian leadership, and obviously this is talking about democracies such as ours, but they need to tell the military that it's time for change to get them to change. However, because civilians generally lack deep understanding of how the military operates, they will typically do that through a military maverick. And listeners can't see, I'm doing air quotes when I say maverick. I read right? this problem in the first show. Uh, That's okay. Because it's, it's a very hotly debated term in, in this arena, right? Where when you say maverick, it's someone inside the military who's thinking different than the conventional you wisdom. You think of everybody's favorite, Pete Mitchell. Or you think of a Pete Mitchell. This is a Top Gun reference, not a reference to my co-host here. Yeah, so the idea is the civilian leadership finds somebody in the military who's got this innovative idea and they empower them, right? And they empower them by promoting them or putting them in positions to do something with this innovative idea. Right now, people who don't like the school of thought will point to someone like Billy Mitchell that Pete brought up earlier in the podcast and say, "Look, Pete Mitchell, I'm sorry, Billy Mitchell, of no relation to either Pete Mitchell." <laughs> oh, yeah. So Billy Mitchell, very much when it comes to air power, he had very innovative ideas, and he was definitely a maverick. The rub was he was absolutely an outsider, untrusted by a lot of people in the military. Billy Mitchell, but I think he's an important guy to talk about because he showcases a lot of, of what you're talking about, right? So we're talking not quite Wright Brothers, right? We're talking circa World War One, 
early 1900s. Yeah, so Billy Mitchell around the time of World War One and going into the interwar years, he was a huge proponent of air power for military capability. And he believed that air power could have strategic effect and be decisive, right? So when it came to... As in naval, win the wars. Yes, as in win the wars, right? So when it comes to naval combat, he said, hey, all those Navy ships can get sunk by aircraft, so you need air power for naval combat. When it comes to land warfare, hey, aircraft can bomb cities, industrial complexes, front lines, enemy capitals, and make it so that the war ends, right? If we can bomb out the capital city of the other country, they're going to tap out. They're going to quit the war. So he was a huge proponent of this stuff, even before aircraft had really shown this capability yet. But he was visionary in that he knew they were going to get there. It was going to be possible. Because at the time he's saying this stuff, it wasn't even proven that an aircraft could carry a bomb heavy enough to do something like sink a battleship. But he did that, right? He, he like, showcased it and people called it fake news. He had to fudge. He had to fudge it a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, so maybe it's, like, a really, really old battleship. And maybe, you know, that that aircraft is, you know, carrying a really big bomb, but it's only got enough gas to fly 10 miles, right, to offset. Right? I don't know. I don't know how he fudged it, but, yeah, I've heard, you know, he fudged it. And so... The reason I bring Billy Mitchell into this is while he's a maverick, there weren't really changes made purely because of Billy Mitchell that would have a resounding effect at the outset of World War II. What happens is Billy Mitchell alienates everybody, makes them all angry, and gets himself fired. And he just becomes an I told you so gremlin later? He does later on, but here's the deal. There's other people who aren't mavericks who kind of come to understand that, you know what? There is a lot of value in this sort of thing. One example is General, or, uh, Admiral Moffat from the Navy. So Admiral Moffat, he was a battleship commander throughout all of his career. So you would expect he's going to be stuck on that old battleship doctrine, right? But he actually starts to think to himself like, no, carrier-based warfare can be decisive in the future. And uh, he ends out, he gets put in charge of the Navy's, I think it's the Aeronautical Bureau or something like that. The people overall in charge of building out things like naval aviation, aircraft carriers, and this sort of thing. And what he does is sort of the opposite of Mitchell. He doesn't sit up on the rooftop saying everything needs to be aviation now, but he starts to make little changes that have a huge effect at the outset of World War II. So he says, look, aircraft carriers... Sure, they can just be your scouts and help patrol and find things and attrit the enemy and do this sort of thing. Isn't that useful, battleship commanders? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. We love having those guys with us in our fleets. And he's like, okay, so we need to make more and bigger aircraft carriers to help better support the battleships. And everyone in the Navy is like, yeah, that makes great sense. We'd love to have more and better aircraft carriers supporting our battleships. He says, hey, if we want these things to be capable... We need to have naval aviators actually in charge of aircraft carriers. Because before, it was just battleship captains who were put in charge of aircraft carriers, but they don't really understand aviation. And so he gets that shift to happen. On land, naval air stations start to be commanded by naval aviators. So all of a sudden, there's this career track for progression for naval aviators where they can start to wield more and more influence throughout the Navy. And so over time, not only is he making it so that there are bigger and better and more numerous aircraft carriers, there's also a bigger place for the aviator profession within the Navy. And so, yeah, at the outbreak of World War II, we're still very battleship-focused, but we've got aviators in positions of power, and we've got aircraft carriers that are capable and able to respond. You started talking the civ, the civ mill model for innovation. And then right around Billy Mitchell, we were like, this one doesn't seem to be it for us. For that later one, we start talking about the career progression and really like the entire force structure is almost adapting to that single innovation point of integrating that air power. Is, is there a name for that model? All right. Yeah. So Barry Posen, he's the dude who wrote the main article on the Civ Mill model. And it's this guy, Stephen Rosen, reads that and comes off the top rope saying, no, shenanigans, mavericks don't work because look at someone like Billy Mitchell. 
and he writes about the intra-service model. And his whole big theory is basically that, look, it needs to be insiders within the military who sort of argue amongst each other and try to figure out what the future of warfare looks like and then set up career paths and ways to progress for people who can achieve success, innovating to get after this new theory of victory. But, but the whole idea is it can't come from outside the military or from some outsider. You need to get the military people themselves to understand that they need to do something different in order to really change the military from the inside. Because the military is so insular, they'll reject it if it's coming from an outside entity. That being said, I think it's worth talking about one other really big model of innovation that's like a big source of bringing about change, right? Which is the inter-service model. And so when we say inter-service model, it's between the services. So Army competing with Navy, competing with Air Force. The inter-service model basically says, look, all of these services are always competing for resources. Army wants money, Navy wants money, Air Force wants money, and you get money by owning missions. What they're going to do is they're going to compete for mission sets. So when we're talking nuclear weapons, once we were using nuclear weapons to offset our enemy's conventional force, if your service wasn't involved in the use of nuclear weapons, well, you're not getting a cut of that check. You're not getting a piece of that mission. And so all of a sudden, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force are all starting to innovate in different ways to deliver nuclear weapons. The Air Force, at the time it was the Army Air Force, right? They were the first ones to deliver it. You drop a bomb out of a plane. But eventually, the Navy, in this competition, they build out the ability to deliver cruise missiles coming out of a submarine. And the Army, you know, we do some real crazy stuff. We're trying to deliver nuclear weapons through artillery shells. We integrated it into the Pentomic Division, too. Exactly. And so all of the services start innovating because they know that nuclear warfare is this new thing in this new mission set. And if they want to maintain their power within the DOD, they have to have a piece of that mission set. Just sort of to... To break the fourth wall, which isn't really much of a wall for for Pete and I so far, it's it's more of like a like a screen or a relatively sheer curtain. Um, but yeah, so these models are all they're they're supposed to help us. They don't help predict innovation. They try to help us understand where that creative genius comes from. Because like I said, I started out this podcast thinking that the military-industrial complex would be what we really talk about. But no, they're kind of like the sideshow. They're just got their hands in their pockets over there just waiting for you to tell them, tell them what to, what to start chugging away at. Each of these models, the civil military, the inter-service and intra-service, like wherever this innovation comes, we, we can see that it has something something there there's a key player or players at a minimum whether they're in the ser they seem to mostly come from in the service which makes sense because that's the experts and they identify this need and then they need to get this buy-in we definitely pete need to need to talk about the multi-service structure that our country has later because factors into a lot of stuff and innovation i want to because like yeah each of these services have their own pressures and their own incentives to be innovating not together because to this day like whoever's got the bigger mission is probably going to end up with a bigger piece of the pie we we tried real hard to leave politics and opinions and policy advocations out of it but the last few national security strategy iterations have all pointed a finger at china as a strategic competitor specifically looking at the region of the South China Sea. Just a very simple, logical jump to there. It seems like we're coming into an era where the Navy is going to be the main focus for innovation. And, I mean, based off of that brief history you walked us through, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see. See? Yes. Uh, naval reference there. Uh, uh. Yeah. How that influences innovation. If you're, if you're thinking about it in those two models. The Marine Corps is a perfect example of the inter-service model at work right now, where we had this shift to the Pacific. First, under the Obama administration, it was, hey, we're going to turn towards the Pacific. And then subsequent 
um, national security strategies have articulated, this is our pacing threat. This is the competitor that we're most worried about when it comes to future defense planning. And so the Marine Corps, if we look at what they have looked like throughout the war on terror and the time previous to that, they largely look like another army. When we look at the jobs they did in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were doing the same stuff the army was doing. They were just doing it with less people in a different area. And the problem is, is that when we look at moving out of the global war on terror, if they don't look like anything unique and they're just another army that happens to ride around on boats, they're not really proving the need for their own set of budgetary constraints or this sort of thing. They need to own some sort of their own unique mission. And so the Marine Corps came up with Force Design 2030 to basically innovate, change, adapt in a way that will make them best able to prosecute the mission set that takes place in the areas in and around, you know, the first island chain and, and those sorts of areas uh, where we expect that we could possibly have a confrontation with China. And so they changed all sorts of things. They're focused on getting long range fires, things that are capable of operating in the littorals. They're getting less infantry in order to be able to get more things like cyber, um, less cannon artillery for more long-range artillery, drone-type capabilities. But they're bringing together all of these things, and it is very innovative, and I think a lot of it looks really intriguing, and it's been hotly debated. There's a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of retired Marine generals came out against it which again sort of gets after what we've been saying. It's really hard to innovate. People get nervous going away from what they know. Okay, boomers. Yeah, like that. well, yeah, I don't know. They bring up some good points too, right? Because, well, what if you're not fighting in the littorals in the Pacific? Then what, Marines? And, and I think the Marines pushing for FD 2030, I think General Berger would tell you, well, these new changes will work in other places too, right? It won't only work there. It's just optimized for there. But it's a perfect example of they've shifted and adapted and innovated in order to carve out that role for themselves that they need to have and in the face of an acute threat. You gave us those different models. You specifically talked about the models that seem to make more sense, so the ones that focus on the people in the military as the innovators. Some of the other things that we've talked about is militaries tend to be traditional. They tend to be closed off and sort of like close hold. They're they're very guarded by the nature of their they're supposed to be guarding stuff. So is the reason those models seem to work to describe innovation so well? Because the military is almost gatekeeping potential innovation. Should the civmil model work and it doesn't work because those policymakers don't know enough about the military model? Should more people be listening to brass tactics so that they can have a more informed opinion on future paths of innovation? Definitely more people should be listening to brass tactics. In terms of why so much of innovation needs to come from within, that's a tough one, right? I, I mean, you need people who inherently understand the military, the challenges, the difficulties, the capabilities um, in order to understand what needs to change. I mean, that being said, it's not that you have to be in the military to have a good idea. I mean, where do people in the military get their ideas for change? Ronald Reagan nearly met with leader of the Soviet Union and got rid of nuclear weapons in Iceland after reading Red Storm Rising. Fictional narratives can have a huge impact on people in leadership, both within and without the military, on getting us to think about the future of warfare and what it could look like and what might need to change to address it. I think there's a huge role to play for whether it's blog articles, podcasts, movies, books, other media of putting out there, what are the innovative ideas you have? What do you think the future of warfare looks like? Science fiction has had a huge role throughout history of helping predict future war and getting people to think about how that's going to affect their preparations for it. Pete, were you tracking about Ronald Reagan almost signing up to get rid of all the nukes? No. Nope. We just recently learned about it this week, but I guess he had gone to talk. I want to say it was Gorbachev. I'm sorry. I'm terrible with names of historical leaders. But basically, they went to just do a, 
a sort of nuclear arms, like talking about nuclear arms limitations and this sort of stuff. And then in the course of their conversation, it was like, well, why don't we just get rid of all the nukes? They're like, yeah, why don't we just get rid of all the nukes? Like, well, I'll do it if you'll do it. So, well, okay, yeah, I'll do it if you do it. And then it didn't all work out because the Soviets were like, well, you've got to get rid of your strategic defense initiative, you know, what they called Star Wars, you know, that sort of thing. And Reagan's like, well, let's not get crazy. I'm not stopping that. We just did an entire episode on innovation, and we didn't once talk about Star Wars until after an hour. Shameful. Well, I guess I can link to it in the show notes since we've overdramatized it. So, big takeaway, encouraging innovation. Lower the barriers to entry for some of these things. Just make it more accessible. The military is probably always going to remain responsible and the leader of its own innovation, but the more input, the more ideas it has access to in the greater community, and vice versa, the likelier we are to inspire effective innovation. Yeah, absolutely. People should listen to brass tactics because you don't necessarily know what might trigger or inspire a new innovative spike. Sean, is there anything you think we should talk about that we haven't talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably good. Sean? Thanks again for joining us. I'd like to say that we're going to have you back on at some point. I don't know. I don't know what other podcast uh, conversations we have lined up. I appreciate the invite, Joe. Thanks for jumping on, Sean. This is Brass Tactics signing off. (laughs) Did you really? Now I have to do it again. This is Brass Tactics signing off. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>